I don't like to call myself an environmentalist because that's such a subjective term, but I'm very, very, very conscientious of the environment. I try extremely hard to make sure that my carbon footprint is very small, and I'm telling you, nuclear is 100% the answer. There's nothing even comparable, not even in the ballpark by order of magnitude. Hello there, how are you all doing? Are you having a good week? Right, I've got an absolute banger of a show today for you. But before I tell you about that, I've also got to tell you about the fact that we've relaunched our Patreon page. It's been sat there in the background for the last couple of years. We haven't really done anything new with it for a while. Danny's been bugging me, so we've refreshed that. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today on the podcast, I've got Anthony Jarrod to come and drop some truth bombs about nuclear energy. Now, we actually found Anthony through his son, who reached out to us and told us all about his dad's background and that we should get him on the show. And so we did a quick pre-interview, what Danny did, and he was blown away by the call. Now, Anthony has a massive history working in nuclear. He used to work on nuclear subs and aircraft characters, and he also helped with the cleanup for Fukushima. So... This man understands nuclear. So it was amazing to get him on the show. And honestly, absolutely love this one. Okay, before we get into that, though, I did mention we have relaunched our Patreon page. Yeah, it's been sat there for a couple of years now, but we haven't really done anything new with it for a while. Danny was telling me to refresh it. Also, when we've been going out and traveling and making the show, other people have been telling stuff they want. So we've refreshed that. One of the things we have added is that if you are a Patreon subscriber, you get new shows two days early. So our Patreons actually got this show two days ago. There's a whole bunch of other perks and bonuses. If you want to go and check that out, that is at patreon.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. Also, if you've got any questions about this show or anything else, please do reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Anthony, welcome to What Bitcoin Did. Hello, it's good to see you today. Yeah, it's good to see you. So your son reached out to us and said, you need to talk to my dad. Yes. Then he reached out and told me and I was like, hmm. 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 Well, I think, Danny, is this the first time we've had a son reach out? I think so. Yeah. Um, how much do you know about what we do? I have been listening to your podcast for about two years now. Oh, right. So you're a listener anyway. Oh, well, I don't miss one. Oh, fantastic. Oh, well, that's great. Well, as you know, we cover Bitcoin, but increasingly because of Bitcoin, uh, we cover energy. And I'd say over the last year or so, we've been trying to understand the nuclear aspect of the energy industry a little right. bit more. And your son was like, you need to talk to my dad. So here we are. We've got you here. Um, I think... The best thing, the best way we can start here is that uh, a number of the people who come on the show, people know who they are. They might not know who Anthony Jarrett is. So sure. can you please just give us your background? Absolutely. So I was born here in Tennessee. It's good to have you in the state. Thank you. Would it be a good time to give you some things? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So brought you a few things. So we'll have to have a few more dads on. <laughs> so the first thing is this is a jar of muscadine jelly from the muscadines grown on our farm oh, for wow. you guys to try. We what hope is that? That's homemade. We made that. Is that jam? It's a, it's a type of grape that is uh, indigenous to the south. Ah. So you have a hard time finding that anywhere else. Very cool. So we made you that. What do you put it on? Do you put it on toast? Toast. You put it on what it, my son likes it on peanut butter. Peanut butter and jelly. Oh, of course. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's it's jelly jam. Yeah. I think it's, we call it jam. Absolutely. My mother made this for you. Oh, wow. wow. This is called Amish friendship bread. 
And she actually has been carrying this yeast forward that she makes this out of for years and years and years. And she puts the yeast in the freezer every year and saves it. And the next year she takes it out. Then she makes all of her breads and then she saves a portion in the freezer for the next year. So this has a lineage that goes far back. It's kind of like a coffee cake, one might say. Wow, this yes. is some Southern hospitality. Yeah. There you go. All right, I've got a present for you now then. Give me one second. Okay. What size are you? Medium. All right, one second. What sports do you like? Oh, football. That's American football, right? We call the other yeah. soccer over here. Soccer. Do you like a bit of soccer? Well, I go watch a little bit of soccer. I was uh, checking your team out. like their uniforms. I like that color. I'm a big fan of the orange. Well, there we go. You now have a jersey. Looky there. This is your jersey. That is outstanding. I was just, I was coveting these as I was looking at your website. Ah, well, you now have one. You're now, well, thank you so much. You're now a Royal Bedford fan. Thank you so much. Okay, well, uh, you have a farm? Yes, do have a farm, right? So I grew up here in West Tennessee between here and Memphis. Uh, we have a farm, uh, several hundred acres. Uh, grew up there. Um, kind, of, kind of an interesting story, so it uh, helps with the understanding. I grew up during the 70s and 80s where we were under the, under the constant cloud of nuclear apocalyptic annihilation, right? You know, you had all your movies like The Day After. You had several other scary movies. And we used to actually do drills sometimes in schools about what would you do if, right? So growing up in that atmosphere, it didn't exactly give me the best feeling about nuclear because everything was associated with nuclear weapons, nuclear war. Then I got to high school and I had a teacher by the name of Mr. Wilson. He was my physics and chemistry teacher. And he did a great job of teaching nuclear chemistry. And as I was listening to him, I thought, wow, uh, this is really neat, and it's nothing like the media has taught me that, that nuclear is. This is very different. So from there, I decided to join the Navy and be a nuclear operator on these submarines and aircraft carriers. So I went off to the Navy. That was in the late 80s, 87. And I did 25 years in the Navy as a, a nuclear operator. And then I specialized in nuclear chemistry and radiation protection and monitoring. And then radioactive material shipping and then radioactive maintenance, like uh, heavy depot level maintenance on radioactive or on nuclear plants. So I did that for 25 years, uh, a lot of time underway on a ballistic missile submarine, about eight years worth of that, uh, three years underway on a nuclear aircraft carrier in the Persian Gulf. Uh, came back to the States. Uh, that's when I started getting into the depot level maintenance. Did the nuclear repair until I retired, and then they hired me back to be the director of the nuclear regional maintenance detachment. So I did that for five years, and then I decided, you know, I think what I want to do is, is go back to the farm, get my solar panels, raise my chickens, do my organic farming, and listen to what Bitcoin did podcast. Wow. Okay. Uh, so many things I want to get into with you. Okay, let's talk about in the Navy. You were a nuclear operator. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess my first question might sound a little bit ignorant, but uh, the nuclear subs are... Mm -hmm. uh, are they nuclear subs because they both have nuclear weapons and are powered by nuclear? In some cases, yes, not in all cases. Okay. Right, so your fast attack submarines, which are the small submarines, right, those have a nuclear reactor, right, conventional weapons. Then your ballistic missile submarines, those have both. But right. I was on a ballistic missile submarine that had both. I, I 
got to visit my first submarine recently when I was in Hawaii. Okay. I went to Pearl Harbor, took Excellent. my kids, and uh, we got to go down to visit inside uh, one of the submarines. Uh, I guess those ones were a lot smaller than, than the ones you uh, yes. worked on. Yes. Well, I worked on both, but the one that I was actually deployed on was one of the larger ones. So, uh, so you would have spent days and days at sea, underwater? So in my eight years, I was on the USS Tennessee, and during my eight years on there, I probably spent a total of between three and four years underwater submerged. That's unreal. Right. So, you know, you would go out for, you know, somewhere between 60 and, you know, 90 days, whatever, you know, that they need you to do to cover packages. And, you know, then you pull back in and then the other crew comes down and they take the ship over or the boat over for a while. And then you go into a training cycle that lasts for 100 days and then you train extremely rigorously for about 100 days and then they come back and then you take the boat back and then you go to sea and you just rotate on and off like that. In those like 60, 90 days you're underwater, how far do you travel? Um, well, that, that all depends on what kind of a package that they have as far as, um, you know, wh where, where you're going, what your mission is. Right, so I mean, it could it could vary from not very far at all to you know extremely far, and there is no limit to how far you could go. Mm -hmm. Right, I mean, you're only limited by the amount of food you have on board. And how deep do you go? Oh, uh, several hundred feet. We'll just leave it at that. Okay. Uh, I know we're here to talk about nuclear, but uh, what, what is it like just living on a sub? Ah, that's that's a good question. Um, first of all, <clears throat> you go to an 18-hour day instead of a 24-hour day which is very different for your body to get used to, right? Everything is 18 hours. So there's no sunlight, no communication with the outside world, no email, no telephones. Uh, every now and then you would get a little data dump of maybe football scores, maybe once every week or so. Priorities. Right. Uh, most of those would be truncated on the page so you couldn't really tell who won anyway, but you know, <laughs> they did the best they could. Um, you stand watch for six hours, and then you do six hours of training or maintenance, and then if you're fortunate, you get a couple hours of sleep, and then you're back on watch again, and you do that for you know, the entire time you're out there. A lot of drills, a lot of training, uh, constantly running emergency casualty drills, and constantly training. And do you get time off there? No. None at all? You know, you wake up and you got enough time to go, you know, do some sit-ups and push-ups and lift a few weights and take a shower and then go on watch. So, you know, you could work an hour into your 18-hour day, you time. And are those modern subs, uh, what are they like in terms of space? Because obviously the one I visited was very compact. Mm -hmm. um, it, it would have been... Uh, thinner than this room that oh, we're in now. Absolutely. And it was very tight and you would jump between compartments. Right. But every single area was using something. That right. would be either a bunk or, you know, a washroom yes. or, or, you know, part of the engine. Yes. It, it, was, it was... The efficiency. Yeah. Very efficient uses of space. So the ballistic missile submarines are larger than the fast attack submarines. Um, you would have, a, you know, a bunk room that was maybe... Hmm... A, quarter of the size of the space we're in with nine guys in it but that's far better than the guys on the fast attack submarines so my, my life wasn't nearly as cramped as theirs was yeah unless you're a captain um even even then or a general uh, do, do you have those? captains yeah. captains yes yeah. so even those guys uh, don't have a lot of space on submarines so when i went to the aircraft carrier my stateroom on an aircraft carrier was larger than a captain's on a submarine 
I did also get to go on a couple of the ships there at Pearl Harbor as well. Okay. It's, uh, have you ever been, Danny? My experience of seeing submarines in Barrow and Furnace, so it's a little bit different to Pearl Harbor. Have you been? No. It, it is quite the experience to go and see it, it, all, see it all. Okay, so you're a nuclear operator on mm-hmm. the sub. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you start the reactor up, you maintain the reactor as far as maintenance, um, you know, just routine maintenance, not heavy depot level maintenance. Uh, you operate the reactor during all kinds of different plant conditions. To, you know, it's for propulsion. It does all the propulsion and all the electricity generation for the submarine, right? Uh, then you shut it down. You, when you bring it into port, right, you cool it down, do some more maintenance on it, right? Then the depot level guys will come in and do the heavy duty maintenance, which is what I did later in my career. And then also while you're underway operating, I specifically was in charge of the nuclear water chemistry, and the radiation monitoring. Okay. Right? So um, we have devices that we wear, and those devices tell you how much radiation you're getting on a daily basis, right? Monthly basis, quarterly basis, right? So I would take those and I would read those to see, monitor, make sure everyone wasn't getting radiation from the reactor plant. Uh, actually walk around with your radiacs and do surveys to make sure that there isn't any radiation or contamination. Um, and then, of course, all the water chemistry you do is to monitor the plant's integrity to make sure that the reactor is operating properly. It's kind of like a doctor doing blood work, right? <laughs> right. To, to see how your health is. Well, I would sample the water to make sure that the reactor was healthy. And so, I mean, the first time I heard about nuclear reactors on submarines, mm-hmm. I, I was a little bit surprised. I was like, huh? What do you mean there's a nuclear reactor on a right. submarine? I mean... I'd never even had to think how uh, propulsion worked on a submarine, but to actually, I was like, hold on, firstly, how? Okay. And how safe is that? It's very, very safe. So so the Navy has been operating those reactor plants for over 50 years, 5,700 total years of reactor operation, and 134 million miles steamed around the world and never a reactor accident and no release of radioactivity that in any way has ever harmed the environment. That's incredibly safe. That is incredibly safe. And think about the conditions that these reactors operate under, right? They're not sitting on land in a stable spot, right? They're on a submarine underwater, taking all kinds of angles, uh, subjected to all kinds of atmospheric environmental conditions, Right, even meant to be taken into warfare and fight other submarines, and yet they're that safe and that stable. Well, that was going to be my next question. If it went into warfare mm-hmm. and there was a direct hit on one, would mm-hmm. that present some kind of risk? Not the kind of risk that it would present to just those of us who are in the hull and the hull breach in the associated ocean rushing into the people space. Yeah, you're in a lot of trouble there. Yeah, a lot of trouble. But there's no possibility of it causing some kind of... Uh, Explosion? No, absolutely not. So, <clears throat> so you have to understand the word. The word explosion means something very specific, right? So let's uh, unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So whenever they mine uranium to make fuel for a nuclear reactor, they turn it into what they call yellow cake. Then they take that and they turn it into a gas, and it's called uranium hexafluoride gas. Then they put that through a series of machines that basically take out all the impurities, not all, but some of the impurities. So your uranium goes to about three to 5% enrichment, and that's the amount of enrichment you need for your uranium-235 in order for a reactor to work. In order to get a situation where it will explode, you have to have it enriched to greater than 80%, 
which uh-huh. is extremely expensive. It takes extremely complicated machinery in order to do that. That's why very few countries have such a program. But that is what I would have heard about when you, I would have read the reports of, uh, uh, say, Hans Blix going to places like North Korea or wherever it was, Iran, I can't remember where, but they would talk about monitoring their enrichment program mm-hmm. to, and it's to yes. ensure they're only going up to the level yes. required for nuclear yes. power. Yes, huh. yes, yes. Interesting. So you don't have to worry about nuclear reactors exploding. It's physically impossible. It would defy the laws of physics. So, uh, and I, do you know what? Because, I mean, we're jumping ahead now, but I think we, I think a lot of people maybe believe that is a risk of uh, they do. a nuclear plant exploding. Absolutely. Absolutely, they do. Like a weapon. Absolutely, they do. Too much uh, Hollywood, too much fiction, right? They're getting their information from Facebook memes and Reddit threads. Or perhaps misinformation from um, environmentalists. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are the people making the memes on Facebook and on the Reddit threads. Huh. So, so the real risk is if there was warfare, you would have some kind of leak? Sure, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's because there's a... Uh, Mother Nature is always trying to kill us, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're underwater, there's an extreme amount of pressure on, on the hull of your submarine. Or if you're on a surface ship, right, you've got the ocean around you, so a breach in the hull is not a, not a good thing to have. And... When you're monitoring for radiation, mm-hmm. uh, is there a safe level that comes from the reactor that's an acceptable level? So <clears throat> I think it would be a good time maybe let's talk about um, what what this terminology means before we go forward. Yes. So you'll have understanding. Okay. So from here on out, I would like for us to use the term millirem when we're discussing the amount of radiation. Okay. Right, so that's M R E M. Right, so that's going to be it's a measure of dose deposited in the tissue of your body. Right, mm-hmm. for perspective, because perspective is extremely important. Right, so what I have found reading anti-nuclear propaganda websites, they like to talk in percentages, but they don't like to talk in numbers, and they never want to give perspective. Okay, so an analogy would be, um, hey, Peter, I increased my Bitcoin holdings by 80% this year. That sounds nice. I don't know how much Bitcoin you have. Right. If I only have one sat, that's nothing. (laughs) If I'm, you know, Michael Saylor, that's really good. Yeah. Right? Okay, so a lot of times they'll speak in percentages because it makes it sound like it's a whole lot, but they don't give perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in... 30 years of working in nuclear power, 11 years underway on nuclear power, eight of that I slept within 60 feet of an operating nuclear reactor. My bunk where I slept was within 60 feet of the reactor. I received less radiation in 30 years from those reactors than I would have gotten in one whole body CT scan at the hospital. Huh, interesting. Those are facts, those are numbers. Uh, just as a side point, whenever I go to the dentist, which is mm-hmm. quite often because mm-hmm. I'm British, okay. um, whenever they do an x-ray, yes. they set it up, yes. they leave the room, they press the button, yes. and then they come back in. Yes. So I'm guessing there's an exposure that's mm-hmm. acceptable for me, but they wouldn't want to have that day in, day out. Right. Um, so a dental x-ray, you're probably getting somewhere three to five millirem, which is about what you get on a cross-country flight. Okay. About from England to here, you probably get seven to ten millirem. 
Danny gets a whole lot on his trip all yeah. the way from Australia, <laughs> right? Okay, so those are, you know, let's see, a, a whole body CT scan is about 1,000 milliram. An abdominal x-ray is about <clears throat> 70 milliram. Right, okay. Okay, so your a federal limit for a nuclear worker is 5,000 milliram. For the general population, it's about 100 milliram in the United States. Okay. okay, just for, you know, understanding, right? Now, let's talk about... Are we, are we being hit right now? Yes, absolutely. So, okay. natural background radiation in the United States, the average is around 300 to 320 milliram per year. Okay. okay. Um, you also receive about another 300 milliram per year from medical sources, man-made sources, x-rays, CT scans. Okay. The natural radiation that we're getting is from bananas, have potassium-40, spinach. Uh, most of the radioactivity in the ocean is potassium-40. That's radioactive. Um, Brazil nuts are radioactive. Um, you know, there's all kinds of natural, uh, the cosmic radiation. That's why on a flight you get so much more radiation than you do when you're at sea level. It's because of the cosmic radiation, the, uh, the photons, the gammas, all the cosmic radiation doesn't have to go as far through the atmosphere. So if you live somewhere, say Albuquerque, New Mexico, or in Denver, Colorado, you get significantly more radiation a year than you do in Nashville, Tennessee. Interesting. Right. So, you know, you're talking, like I said, we get about 300 milliram per year. Okay. Uh, there's places like Finland that get 7,500 milliram per year. What about astronauts? They, I do not know enough to speak to the specifics of that, but yes, they would get significantly more radiation unless they have something that shields them from it, and I'm not an expert enough on what they do to understand that. I went to South by Southwest uh, about a decade ago uh, in Austin, Texas, and uh, <clears throat> I went for the tech, but I ended up, there was lots of these weird side ones, and there was one about uh, NASA were running a panel okay. on get into Mars. And it was just a panel to explain all the challenges they have to get to Mars. The one thing I remembered, they said, I'm not going to say it's the biggest challenge, but one of their biggest challenges, they said, is that Mars does not have the uh, atmospheric protection of the Earth. Right. And uh, the biggest risk is radiation absolutely. poisoning. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Something, I something I haven't heard Elon talk about, but right. anyway. Right. So let's talk about two different types of radiation that you could get as far as... Um, time periods. So there's acute doses and then there's chronic doses. Okay. That makes a big difference. Okay. An acute dose is a dose you would get in hours or days or maybe weeks. A chronic dose would be like over the course of a year. Okay. Those impact your body differently because your body naturally heals itself because it's constantly being bombarded by radiation. So your body knows how to heal itself. Three things that can happen when the radiation hits your cell it interacts with the electrons in your cells. It can immediately just heal itself. It can die and go away. You have cells that die every day, thousands and thousands, right? Or it can mutate. That's the one you're, of course, concerned with, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you get an acute dose up to, say, 10,000, not a problem, okay? Chronic doses over the course of a year up to 50,000, not a problem, milligrams. Right? So it's important that you understand those numbers because those numbers, we've been proven forever that they won't hurt you. For instance, the people in Finland probably get 50,000 milligram a year and they're extremely healthy. And they get that from the granite where the glacier scraped the dirt away from the granite. 
It's got uranium in it, so they get a lot of radiation naturally, and they're perfectly healthy. Okay. Where you get into a problem is high, short, acute doses. Over 100,000 milliram, you start getting radiation sickness, blood changes, and then at about 500,000 milliram, that's when you start getting death. And what are the kind of incidents where that may happen? So it would be very, very difficult to do that except for use of medical isotopes, right? So the medical field, if, if, they, if they were like continuously giving you CT scans. Now, sometimes when doctors use it for cancer treatments, they go into extremely high doses, but they're isolating where that is being used so it's not a whole body dose, right? Is, and that, they, is that like radiotherapy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, so it's interesting. Um, uh, my father is about to uh, have to take a course of radiotherapy, mm -hmm. and uh, he said most of the session is getting a setup, laid down, mm -hmm. and targeted yes. at the specific yes. point. Yes. And I, I want to say it's like the whole thing's a six-hour session, but the majority of the time is getting the setup mm -hmm absolutely pinpoint correct. Yeah, it's very high levels. I'm not aware of exactly how high they do go because yeah. I'm definitely not a doctor, but that's, it matters also the parts of your body that are exposed, right? So your hands, your feet, your extremities, they don't have large blood producing organs. So the dose when it's deposited in those portions doesn't have the same detrimental effect, right? Okay. Now, there is a theory that most people prescribe to. It's called the linear non-threshold theory. What that means is, is that since we know that very high levels of radiation can kill you, they say that that's linear all the way down to zero, and there is no threshold under which it's safe. Okay, It's a very conservative outlook. It's much like saying at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, water will burn you, so at 36 degrees Fahrenheit, it will burn you a little bit. Right. It's not true. Okay. Right? And there's been a lot of studies that have actually shown what they call the hormesis effect. And it's where small amounts of radiation actually trigger your DNA repair mechanisms, which to me would make sense since we have evolved in an atmosphere of radiation for thousands and thousands and thousands of years that our bodies would understand how to make those repairs, right? Mm -hmm. So small amounts of radiation, definitely not a problem. It's large amounts, over 100,000 milliram that are acute in a very short period of time that are of concern. Do you know what I'm already feeling is um, this morning, Peter Zahan uh, had clips of him appearing on Joe Rogan talking about Bitcoin. Um, and it's clear he doesn't understand it. I can imagine there's many scenarios you'll hear people talk about uh, nuclear and you get very frustrated because they have no idea what the hell they're talking about. Danny asked me if I had watched the movie Chernobyl. I told him I couldn't bring myself to do it. I'm saving myself from the frustration. <laughs> the, the series is actually very well okay. made. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring it up because that's, that's where my education of Chernobyl comes from. Okay. Um, it's very well made, very well acted. Um, but I'm going to be interested to dig into your issues with that. But we'll, we'll come back to that. Just back to the sub. Okay. The reactor in the sub, is that encased Absolutely. with something to protect? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. yeah. So you have all pressurized water reactors in the United States and elsewhere. <clears throat> First of all, they're what we call inherently stable, right? So they don't take a lot of operator action to keep themselves safe because your water is used as a moderator, so what happens is, is when you have a uranium-235 and another neutron hits it, it becomes excited. And then it gives off a barium and a krypton and three neutrons. Then those three go and do more reactions. 
These reactions are releasing the binding energy, which is extremely powerful, right? E equals MC squared, right? The conversion of mass to energy, the C squared portion, right? That's where, that's your constant that explains the energy release, right? So when you're burning fossil fuels, all you're doing is breaking down chemical bonds, which are not very efficient. So they don't release a lot of energy. If you took a uranium-235 the size of a raisin, and you could convert 100% of that into energy, which it's very difficult to do 100%, but if you could, it would power New York City for a day. Wow. Right? So one, one pellet of uranium-235, right, about the size of a sugar cube maybe, right? You, had, you drink that in your tea, right? Yeah, we have. Okay. All right, so a sugar cube is the same as about 2,000 pounds of coal, 17,000 cubic feet of gas, or 120 gallons of oil. Wow. That's how dense the energy is, right, from nuclear energy. Okay, so when this reaction happens, it's releasing all this binding energy, then what happens, the neutrons need to be slowed down, so they'll spend more time in the area to cause more fissions. So we use the water to slow the neutrons down, to thermal neutrons. Then they create more, more reactions. Well, if something happens in the unlikely, unlikely event that it did, and the power started going up uncontrollably, the temperature starts going up, the water becomes less dense. The less dense the water, the less neutrons are thermalized. The less neutrons are thermalized, reactor power turns and drives itself down with no operator action. Hmm. Right? So it's inherently safe. So it like self-regulates almost. Yes, it self-regulates by through that process. Okay. Hmm. Now, your new integrated fast reactors and uh, advanced fast reactors, they have a little bit of a different mechanism by which they use the geometry of the fuel and the expansion and contraction of metals in order to do the same thing. So where a pressurized water reactor just uses the density of the water, they use fuel geometry. The, the sub I visited... Um, the, one of the primary issues they had was how long the uh, battery packs would last for. Yes. And then they would have to go back up to the surface. Yes. Uh, and to recharge. So, I can't, you, I can't so you were on a diesel submarine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you were on a diesel submarine. Um, and so they'd have to go back up to the surface to recharge. Right. And there was a limitation on how, Absolutely. You know, just because of the technology at the time. Um, obviously, with a nuclear reactor, that's not an issue. Um, but you also mentioned you have the nuclear reactors on the ships as well. Did you mention that? Oh, surface ships. Yeah. Aircraft carriers. Yeah. Yes. Um, is there an efficiency? Like, is there more, or is it just because aircraft carriers are just so huge, they require so much power? Or is there an efficiency over fuel? Or is it more, you know, or is it more expensive to run these? Do you know? Well, you don't have to refuel them, right? Yeah. Okay, so for instance, around every month or so, we do what we call an underway replenishment on an aircraft carrier. So you'll go up and you'll drive the aircraft carrier and you have to maintain a certain heading and then a ship comes alongside you and you have to load food on board for the 5,000 plus people. Yeah. Right. Well, imagine if you also had to do that with fuel, right? We never have to refuel them. We can just go and go and go with no refueling. Yeah. I mean, I get that efficiency, but the cost of a nuclear reactor uh, in a sub and the cost of maintenance versus, say, the cost of you know, diesel... And what I'm, what I'm trying over to, time, it's not even in any way comparable. The nuclear reactor is far less expensive over time. Yeah, so I wonder, why don't cruise ships have them? I do not know the answer to that. I can only speculate. Yeah. But my speculation would be Fear. the amount of 
the, well, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they could educate themselves and not be fearful, but it's probably the immense amount of training, right? Because you have regulatory bodies like the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the International Atomic Energy Agency, right? So it's, we have very stringent oversight from the nuclear regulator, and you have to do a lot of training, and it's a very exacting, precise process, right? And a lot of people probably would not be willing to invest the money necessary in that piece of it, right? And the yeah. constant upkeep. The reason I asked, back when I used to work in advertising, one of my clients was Royal Caribbean Cruises oh, okay. and uh, Celebrity Cruises, part of their group. Um, and one of the issues they faced was uh, um, that these cruise ships pollute the oceans yes. because they're diesel powered. Yes. They, they use a lot of diesel yes. and they pollute the oceans. Um, the pollution from a nuclear reactor is the minimal amount of nuclear waste I get. You, I guess you have that you have a whole process for dealing with. Sure. But outside of that, I guess, is there any... So it was tried, it looks like. Ah. Uh, NS Savannah was She the was first, a merchant ship. Yeah, a nuclear-powered merchant ship. She was built in the late 50s at a cost of uh, $46.9 million. Uh, and launched in, she was funded by the United States government agency. Savannah was a demonstration project for the potential use of nuclear energy. Uh, oh, that's a cargo ship. I thought it was a cruise ship. But even so, why not cargo ships? Um, economics of nuclear propulsion, that's probably where I'd be most interested. You see that, Danny, number three? Uh, Savannah was the demonstration. However, Savannah's cargo ship was limited to 8,000 tons. And, uh, as a result of design handicaps, training requirements, additional crew. See, training. Yeah, yep. training. Savannah's cost approximately 2 million a year more in operating subsidies. Mm. Training. Yeah. Training will get you. Yeah. But I wonder if it, it was something that was widespread, there would be efficiencies. But anyway. Well, there would be, right? Because that's the same with the small modular reactors, right? Yeah. Right. The more widespread and the more... Um, repetitive it becomes and the more interchangeable it becomes, the more you pick up efficiencies, just like Henry Ford did with the assembly line. Yeah. It's exactly the same concept, right? When you take a ship like that that's one of a kind, it's extremely expensive to upkeep. You have to have an entire supply process just for that one ship. Right. Right? I mean, that in itself is tremendously expensive. You have to have a specific training program just for that one ship. Right? Could the... Theoretically... Could the technology be used to power planes? That was tried. Really? So one of the books that I recommend, <clears throat> if you're ever really interested, is I am a, so it's, interested. it's called Atomic Awakening. I'm going to read this tonight. Okay. So that one explains to you the history from the time that we first began to understand what radiation was all the way up until pretty much where we are today. Right, And it gives a really good history lesson. And they actually, the Air Force did develop some for planes. And it did not work well. And there were a myriad of problems with it that I don't think you want to go into today. But it was just, it was not functional for an airplane. Yeah, and I guess also, um, you talked about the uh, stability underwater. <laughs> planes do crash. <laughs> yes, and that's problematic. Yeah. Right? Yeah, okay. you, so. you, you're going to have a you're going to have a rate of plane crashes. Maybe it's only even one or two a year, but the, there are two yes. instances there. And even more problematic than that was they were going to try it to power spaceships, uh -huh. like space shuttles. Yeah. And when they started doing the risk analysis, they started seeing that while they could do it in theory, that the downside was was not what they wanted. It just simply wasn't. It wasn't worth the risk that it would pose if they were to try something like that. Yeah, if you had a challenger right, uh, yeah. high up in the atmosphere, yes. we don't know yes. what would rain down. Right.
This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which, you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also, we have Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SAT or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy for you. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it's just a click or phone call away. Casa has the best in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Take your financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Okay, so you moved from the sub onto the uh, aircraft carrier. Uh, how many years were you on that? Three years. Similar job? <clears throat> yep. I was actually, um, I got commissioned as a nuclear officer, and then I went to the aircraft carrier to be the chemistry and radiological controls officer. Okay. Which I did more nuclear chemistry and more radiation controls. And did that for three years. Um, also qualified a surface warfare officer, you know, officer of the deck, all those great things you do so you can fight the warship in the Persian Gulf. And I spent a year in the Persian Gulf um, during Iraqi freedom. Uh, the first Iraq war. Yeah. And then um, went then went from there back to the United States. And that's when I started doing the depot level maintenance. Okay. So when you say doing nuclear chemistry... Mm-hmm. So there's an ongoing, is this just the ongoing process of the, the reactions within the... Yes. Okay. Yes. So, so you want to measure the water to make sure it's the right purity. Mm-hmm. Because if you do not have the right purity and there's any sorts of defects in your piping, you can start having issues with corrosions. Is this where they talk about soft water or something, or hard water? Well, yes. Yeah. Um, that's... Yes, you're correct. Uh, not, not the right terminology. Okay, what yes. was the term? Yes. Well... Pure is what we call okay. it, pure. But pure would be soft. 
But pure is, is, is far, far, far less uh, chlorides or whatever the case may be in that water, total dissolved solids, right, all those kind of things. The pH has to be perfect because you don't want corrosion in your reactor plant. A lot of the problems, my understanding is, a lot of the problems the French are having right now is because they discovered <clears throat> a few defects. I believe they might have been in some welds in the piping. And see, improper water chemistry can really exacerbate a problem like that. So that's why you have to have very exacting standards on your water chemistry. So it kind of is uh, twofold. You measure the purity of the water constantly, like daily, and then you also have to measure the radiochemistry in the plant to make sure that you're not releasing any fission products from the fuel to make sure that the uh, is operating safely. So you do both of those every day. And then on your secondary side, that's your steam that's spinning your turbines, making your electricity and propulsion. You also measure all that for the right levels of purity also because you don't want any contamination or radiation contamination on the secondary side. And on the aircraft carrier, how, how big's the team working on the reactor? Uh, I believe we had around... 400-ish in that neighborhood on any on, given time. On the reactor? Yeah, we, yes. The, 400 on the reactor on an aircraft car? have two of them, two reactors. Two reactors. Right? So you got about 200, 200 on each one. Okay, if you'd asked me to guess in advance, I would have said, what, 20, 30? No, that's on the submarine. Yeah, but even on the aircraft, so that's, that, but that, how many people are on the aircraft car in total? So it depends. We, yeah. have, we have air wings that come on board, the guys that actually fly the planes. Yeah. Okay, when they come on board, it really swells the company. Uh, I'm just guessing between two and 3,000 normally, all depending on the day of the week. And then when the uh, air wing comes on board, it probably doubles that or more. But still a significant percentage purely on the reactor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. And, and just from my perspective, what size is the reactor on, say, an aircraft carrier? Is it larger than a submarine? Larger than the submarine's reactor or larger than the submarine? Larger than the submarine's reactor. Okay, right. yeah. I kind of want to see one. Can you have a look at, yeah. see if you can see what one looks like? Um, okay, so um, you've, left the, you've left the Navy. I have now, yes. No, I mean, I'm oh. sorry, I'm talking in terms of time oh, scale. Okay, yes. So you leave the Navy and remind me what you went to do there. Okay, so they, I took a job as the director of Nuclear Regional Maintenance Detachment, which is uh, stationed in Southeast United States. And I took over the actual depot level maintenance, right? So had an engineering group, great group of guys, uh, wrote all the paperwork, all the technical work documents to do all the maintenance. Had an operational group that would help the sailors on the ships with the conditions of the reactor plants during maintenance. Had a radiological monitoring department that took care of um, all the stuff that I had done my entire career. And then, of course, you know you have your admin and overhead people as well, right? So then still you still supporting the navy, then? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I had a uh, I had a, you know, a couple of probably 75 to 100 civilians, and then about that many Navy guys. It was a mixed group that worked for me. See, just seeing this picture that Danny's brought up uh, mm-hmm. of the reactor, it kind of looks about the size of, of, size of a, a minivan, maybe a bit bigger. Mm-hmm. Yes. My perspective maybe, maybe three. Three minivans, okay. Um, but the interesting thing about that, the technology in that, can, two of those can power a... Is it two because... One's a backup, or do they both operate at the same time? They both operate at the same time, but it gives you backup and reliability, right? Okay. But so two of those can power an aircraft carrier, mm-hmm. carbon-free, uh, 
Um, like, how often did, did, would it have to stop soon because you needed made new nuclear fuel, or could the nuclear fuel just last for years? Decades. Oh, decades. Right. So, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's uh, pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It's, it it kind of makes you realize, like, like I'm jumping ahead, but it kind of makes you realize, like, this is the technology we should be using for for powering our homes. Right. So one of the things I had been discussing with Danny earlier is that. I don't like to call myself an environmentalist because that's such a subjective term, but I'm very, very, very conscientious of the environment. My farming, organic. I raise my own food. All the red meat that I eat, most all the red meat that I eat, I kill myself via hunting. I have solar panels on my house. The average home uses 12,000 kilowatts of electricity a year. I've gotten it down to 3,500 a year. I try extremely hard to make sure that my carbon footprint is very small. And I'm telling you, nuclear is 100% the answer after operating it, working on it for 30 years, monitoring the safety. There's nothing even comparable, not even in the ballpark by order of magnitude. What do you hunt? Deer. You do? I feel like we need to visit this farm. I think we need to come down, we need to go hunting with Hmm. you, have some of your organic food. Okay, we're gonna we're going to get to that uh, that part, um, but I want you to talk to me about Fukushima. Okay, what happened there? So I'd rather than me okay. just give a rough intro, <clears throat> my what, my understanding, just what happened at Fukushima. So, so what basically happened? It was my understanding that the Japanese regulatory group operated somewhat differently than what we are operate our nuclear regulatory commission does in the United States. So the way we operate is it's kind of like having a police officer, that's what you call them, right? Yeah, yeah. England police officer. <clears throat> a police officer driving around in the car with you all the time. Okay. Right? So we have one on site all the time. When the regulator gives you recommendations, you go do those things. Well, the Japanese regulatory agency does not appear to have been maybe as independent. They had given some recommendations of some things that needed to happen to protect from the eventuality of earthquakes, tsunamis. Some of the plants in in that area did do what they were supposed to do, the recommendations. They had no problems. The ones that did, when the earthquake happened, the off-site power went down. Okay, the reactors shut down like they were supposed to. Their diesels started to provide backup power because when a reactor shuts down, the high-level power generation stops, but you have what we call decay heat from fission product decay, which continues to generate some level of heat less than normal power heat. But you have to remove that by circulating water. They had to have these emergency diesels to power the pumps to circulate the water to remove that heat. Everything worked exactly like it was supposed to. The diesels were located entirely too low in relation to what they should have been. So when the tsunami came, it swamped the diesels and the diesels shut down. Now, the earthquake had already shut down the power offsite. The tsunami shut down that power. Nothing was circulating water. So three important things with the reactor, right? You got to control it. You got to contain it. You got to cool it. And in a scenario where you want to shut it down, mm-hmm. if you successfully shut it down, mm-hmm. uh, have you neutralized the, all the threat, the majority of the threat? You, you have neutralized 
the criticality of the reactor so it no longer has a self-sustaining criticality. So it's no longer splitting and giving you the three extra neutrons that go on to make more reactions. But you still have the fission products that it takes them some amount of time to decay and they release heat while they're decaying, right? Okay. So you have to cool it during that interim. Okay. And the risk, just so we understand the risk, when there is a risk to a nuclear plant, what is the risk that they're trying to avoid happening? So would, meltdown of the fuel would yes. be, right, that's why you have to right, control, contain, and cool, right? So you, you insert the control rods that are made of something like cadmium, hafnium, whatever the case may be, and that absorbs the neutrons and shuts down the nuclear chain reaction. Is it like a casing? Um, if you can just imagine like a long pencil, yep. and it gets inserted down into the reactor. So it goes down into the reactor where all the neutrons are interacting with the fuel and it absorbs, it soaks up all the neutrons. Okay. So the criticality stops. And how long does that take? Instantaneously. Oh, instantaneously. I mean, it's some amount of seconds or maybe a minute, but I mean, it's practically for all intents and purposes. And the, the risk is if that doesn't happen and the neutrons start going crazy. So they, they, they fail, the rods will fail by going to the bottom. Okay. Right. So there even if even if the worst case happened and one of them were ejected or something, the rest of them would shut it down. Right. I mean, it's it's a fail-safe method. Right. What happens is is when you can't remove that residual decay heat from the fission products, that's the problem. So as we have gotten into generation three and four reactor plants, they now have much better systems than the one at Fukushima. They have like gravity-fed cooling. So they don't need pumps and diesels in order to supply that power. It would just gravity feed down and cool them. And is the risk here that um, when a plant goes into meltdown, that too much steam is created, creates too much pressure, and that's what causes an explosion? Well, not explosion. Remember, we talked about that. Well, it could cause a, a, a violent release, right? Yeah. But I, right. When I say explosion, not like a nuclear explosion, I just mean like there's too much steam and it causes some yes. kind of... Yes. Pressure. And yes, the pressure. expansion. Yeah. Which could be released, right? I, I like to be careful because yeah. the word explosion, that's a that's a that, that's a touchy word. It usually is associated with bombs, right? So, so, yeah, so I'm trying to remember it from watching Chernobyl, right. whereby uh, I was trying to my understanding is that there was so much pressure from all the steam and that caused yes. the only one I can think of is explosion because the, the, the and, and understand the problem at Chernobyl was they had no pressure containment building. Yes. Right. And that is a huge the, that was the only example of that in the world. Basically, what Chernobyl was, it was the... Shall we come back to Chernobyl? Yeah, we can come yeah, back. Yeah, because okay. I, I want to discuss that separately. But but that's that's the issue is the pressure. Mm -hmm. um, and if there is like a pressure release, mm -hmm. that would release the nuclear... That would yes. shoot the nuclear uh, yes. radiation out. Woods. Yes, radiation yeah. and contamination. Yes, okay. You understand the difference between radiation and contamination? So for me, radiation is the... Um, the neutrons? It's the electromagnetic waves. And the contamination is the nuclear waste getting into the soil and atmosphere? Finely divided particles. There we go. Yes. Right. So, so the contamination is just finely divided particles. Like if you were to take a file yeah. and file a piece of metal, and then the radiation is the waves coming off of that. Okay. I understand. Right. right. And then what you're really worried about is you've got alphas, betas, and gammas. Yes. Right? And they react with your body differently. Right? The alphas can be the most damaging if you get them internal, but they pose no 
health risk if they're external because they can't get through the dead layer of skin on your body. Okay, I understand. Where your betas don't do quite as much damage, but they can't make it through your clothes. The gammas are really the ones you're concerned with. Right, okay. So back to Fukushima, um, there was no ability for the diesel generators to run, so therefore they couldn't go, down, go through the shutdown process? Well, th they were shut down at this point. They okay. just could not continue to circulate cooling water. Okay, so what happened after that? Okay, so then you started getting the pressure build up, right? And then as the pressure built up, you started having the releases that you were talking about with damage to the fuel, subsequent releases due to the pressure build up. Right? Okay. Then they had to, they had to, of course, vent some of that. They had to release some of that water, right? Because the pressure continues to build up, build up, build up, right? So, you know, they were trying to pick strategic times to do it when they could. I mean, but it was, you know, it was a, it was a mess, right? So it took some time. And what, was there a meltdown at Fukushima? Yes. There was? Yes. Okay. How serious a situation was that? I think anytime you have a meltdown, it's a serious situation. I mean, you know, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, right? All three of them were serious situations. Now, Chernobyl being by far the worst, yeah. then Fukushima, then Three Mile Island in that order. Okay. And in terms of Fukushima, do we know the collateral damage? Sure. So is there a, is there a quarantine zone? So they, they call it an exclusion zone. Yeah. <clears throat> so just perspective because it's important, right? Yeah. So most of your radionuclides decay relatively rapidly. Mm -hmm. For instance, um, you're worried about radioiodine. Uh, that's the one that will cause uh, thyroid cancer. It has about an eight-day half-life. Something has to go through five half-lives in order to no longer really be a concern. Okay. okay, so after about 40 days, that was all decayed away and was no longer a concern. Then you've got a multitude of other things, right, that all decayed away. Cesium-137 is a gamma emitter. That one has a 30-year half-life, right? So you're talking much, much longer, right? A plutonium has an extremely long half-life, okay? So at this point, those are the things that are left. So for perspective, current radiation levels... Now, this is a general radiation level in that exclusion area. I understand there'll be people that are listening that can probably find something on Google that shows one spot somewhere, one square inch that's different, right? But the general level is about 200 millirem per year above background. And remember, background can range from 300 to 26,000. So what I'm telling you is the amount that is still there would be much like you getting on a scale and saying, I weigh 160 pounds and eating a peanut and thinking you're going to see the difference. Right? It's, yeah. it's not. And, and at Fukushima, I'm, I'm trying to go by memory, but was it not the case they had to send some workers into the plant, into a dangerous that, environment? Oh, I, absolutely. Just much like they did at Chernobyl. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's, there's things that, okay... And, that's a great question because what really came out of Fukushima was less, it was a little bit about design in that, you know, how do you get your backup power and what are the constraints on your backup power and is your backup power really reliable, which was a great thing. But what really came out of Fukushima during the hot washes where they debriefed and really studied the lessons learned was response, preparation, training, people, right protective clothing, understanding, those lessons that came out of Fukushima, that was what was really learned, right? So in the future, they will have a much better plan, right? So 
we were able to help them a lot with that when they sent us in because we very stringently train on those things in the United States. Oh, so you went out there? Yes. Okay. Yes. So they, I was working down um, in uh, Georgia at the time. And then when that happened, they flew me to the Ronald Reagan strike group, which was the aircraft carrier strike group that was off the coast that had actually went through the radioactive plume and had some contamination deposited on the ship and the other ships. They flew me out, <clears throat> and I helped with the recovery efforts from the carrier strike group side, while other people from our regulatory agency worked with the Japanese government. So I headed up the efforts in the strike group, and it was basically you know, making sure that when we went out to fly missions, because we were flying routine relief missions, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 250,000 tons of relief of food, water, you know, that we took to them. I would decontaminate the helicopters when they came back, decontaminate the people, made sure that anything they picked up they didn't bring into the people space, decontaminate the flight deck of the aircraft carrier, right? So we worked on a lot of things like that. Do we know what the resulting number of uh, deaths, casualties, cancers from Zero. Fukushima? From Fukushima, nothing. Nothing. So no, no deaths from Fukushima. Um, the World Health Organization, the last release that they had, said that there would be no observable increase in cancers from Fukushima. Now, what is meant by observable? Right? It's one of those terms yeah. that I think we have to understand. So 25 to 30 percent of any population dies of cancer anywhere. Just pick your group. Okay. What that means is that there are going to be people that were there that are going to die of cancer, but it's going to fall within the statistics of the 25 to 30% that would normally die of cancer. There will be no observable increases. And even the workers who went into that dangerous environment? Yes. Yeah, interesting. Okay. The only example we have, of course, the same with Three Mile Island, it was no, no deaths, no cancers, right? Um, of course, you know, you got, when they're looking at the cancers, they look at like leukemia, so that manifests itself relatively quickly, say within 10 to 20 years. So we're definitely past that on most things like Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. <clears throat> your hard, your solid cancers take longer to manifest, right? So they have to do statistical analysis, right, for those things. Um, but yes, so Chernobyl, 46 people died at Chernobyl, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the worst case, most conservative estimates are that 4,000 total could die from cancer. That's the worst case. Uh, statistically, it would probably be much, much less than that. The real sad story of Chernobyl is, for instance, it's estimated 200,000 women aborted their children for fear of genetic effects. And there has never been an observed genetic effect from radiation exposure ever, not even in the 70,000 people they have tracked following the atomic bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, zero genetic effects. The interesting thing about these numbers is that uh, I wonder how many people have died mining coal. Okay, well, <clears throat> for instance, how many people died of shark bites last year? 11 to 15, right? People are terrified of sharks. I am. Okay, 40 people died from dog bites. You probably love dogs. Um, I think I would have thought that number would even be higher. Right, right? okay. Yeah. Um, see... 87,000 people were accidentally poisoned in their homes last year. Yeah. Right? And the worst is vehicular accidents. Just in the United States alone, 45 to 50,000 people die a year in vehicle accidents. 
six to seven million from air pollution from fossil fuels and yep. other industrial pollutants. Million, seven million. Improper diets and lack of exercise, 11 million a year. And we're worried about the 46 at Chernobyl, which was a horrible design, horribly engineered. Yeah, it, was, it was basically, they had it built in a tent. We will come back to Chernobyl. Um, just back on Fukushima. Yeah. Uh, was the location a poor choice, being that close to the ocean? I don't think, I don't think the location was a poor choice. No. The location, it was not engineered properly for the location. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you think, will Fukushima ever be an operational plant again in the future? I do not know enough to answer that. No, okay. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure what their plans are with that and what they're going to do. I know the other plants um, that had taken the right precautions are still operational, and I do believe that they have plans to continue to operate those. Does it not make sense that all plants globally operate by the same standards? And is there an attempt to do that with the International Atomic Agency? It's my understanding that that's their intent, is for that to happen. And it's the more knowledge sharing that we have and the more training, cross-training that we have, uh, the more interaction between agencies we have, certainly the better that gets. Uh, We saw that following um, Katrina, right, in the United States. Our agencies did not interact well together, and a lot of things happened that could have been avoided because mm. of that, right? So, yes, absolutely. Standardization is, is key, yes. Okay, let's talk about Chernobyl. Okay. Um, you said you've not watched the series. Nope. What, what is your fear? So, when I'm watching shows like that, I get frustrated at some of the, um, which I'm not judging that one because I haven't seen it. I yeah. can always speak to things that I have seen and read. For instance, the, the initial reports, when you go read the initial reports that came out of Chernobyl, they were estimating... Hundreds of thousands of people were going to die. Uh, there was a report of a mass grave that they had bulldozed 15,000 people into. It's just insane, the propaganda, the hysteria, right? So yeah. I get frustrated when I read and watch things that aren't based on reality, right? Hmm. right. So, I mean, my my only yeah, education, recent education of what happened at Chernobyl is from that show. Right. So, but But based on that show being... My assumption is at least partially accurate. Sure, it is. Some of the main issues were there were uh, not proper operations, uh, processes, um, uh, poor management, and then uh, following the explosion uh, was the um, desire by politicians to interfere Mm -hmm. with what's happening. That seemed like the primary issues. We all have that problem in our countries, right? Yeah, we do. (laughs) Yeah, we do. but it's, this seems like a problem of history. Yes. It's not the kind of issues we, would, we hope we wouldn't have now right. anyway. Right. So I think that we, as a people, do a lot. We're very poor at risk assessment, mm-hmm. right? Maybe this, maybe this would be a good time to talk for a minute about how the fear and superstition happens, okay? So back when we first developed nuclear power, in atomic energy, there was a lot of secrecy, big government secrecy, right? It was also associated with the military, mm-hmm. industrial complex. A lot of people's not so favorite thing, especially our libertarian friends, right? Okay. So that secrecy really turned a lot of people off. Then you had all the weapons testing, which 
scattered a good bit of radioactivity around the globe by all countries involved over time. That really turned a lot of people off. <clears throat> you had a whole anti-war movement back in that time period, late 40s, 50s, 60s, that they knew there was nothing they could do about the nuclear weapons because even if we were to give them up, as soon as we went to war, we would all make them again. So there's a thing called the psychology of distancing. What happens is, let's say one of two spouses goes to work and is having a hard time with their boss. So they go home and they yell at the other spouse. The other spouse says, okay. So they go and yell at the kids. The kids can't do anything about that, so they go kick the dog. Okay. They couldn't do anything about the weapons, so they turned their angst to nuclear power. So that started the anti-nuclear movement. People fear that which they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And when something is not clearly understood, people think more of consequence than they do probability. We're horrible at risk assessment. Absolutely terrible at it as, as people. That's why people are more afraid to fly than they are to drive, even though the odds per mile of them dying in a vehicle are much, much greater. Yeah, you don't want to fly with me. There you go. <laughs> right, because they don't, they don't feel like they're in control. Yes. Okay. I think, yeah, it, it is fear of consequence. Absolutely. So, of consequence. So, so they think more about, so what it is, they start substituting the how do I feel about it question with the what do I think about it question. Yep. And it all becomes about feel, right? It doesn't become about facts. The media will always report on things. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. Right? So it's much like FTX, FTX and Bitcoin. Right? We've got to work some Bitcoin in. Mm -hmm. right? Okay. So Bitcoin has gotten lumped into what happened with Luna and FTX. Because Bitcoin equals cryptocurrency equals Luna and FTX bad, so it's all the same. That's what we've done with nuclear power over the decades, right? And the media feeds that because they're not nuanced and educated enough to have the nuanced conversation on air. And a bit on air is, what, 7, 15, 30 seconds? So they just shoot out this little headline of information that totally lacks understanding and nuance and lumps everything together. So that's what's happened with nuclear power. We recall information through an availability heuristic. So when you have heard something over and over, whether it's true or not is irrelevant. If your mind recalls it quickly, you'll believe it's true. Then when you see several different media outlets doing this, you have what they call an availability cascade. Then the more they report on it, the more afraid people get, the more they watch, so the more they report on it, and you got a positive feedback loop. So that's what happens in regards to these things, right? They lack mm. nuance and understanding, right? People confuse plausible with probable. They think just because something is plausible that it's probable. They have nothing to do with each other, right? You can develop a coherent story in your mind that's plausible, and the odds of it occurring can be one in a billion, one in billions, but it could be plausible in your mind, right? Right. So that's what's happened mm. with a lot of this that makes it makes people fearful and superstitious. And then it becomes almost like a religion. 
right? Have you ever noticed how apocalyptic we are, human beings in general? Yeah. Every major religion out there has an apocalyptic ending, right? We're apocalyptic. We're drawn to that, right? So things like Chernobyl feed that. Yeah. Even though the numbers of the worst case thing that could possibly happen, the worst engineering, the worst casualty control, the worst design, everything, 46 unfortunate individuals lost their lives. Yep. Okay. 10.9 million a day from poor diet and exercise. 10.9 million a day? Oh, a year. Yeah, me, yeah. A year. Yeah. From poor diet and exercise. Yeah. Right? Well, I, like I just think of um, mining disasters. You yes. Know, you hear about a, uh, a mining pit caving mm-hmm. in and 100, 150, 50, all these different numbers. You ever heard of Bhopal, India? No, but tell me. Uh, so... Bhopal, India is the worst industrial accident to have ever occurred. There was a union carbide plant. They were making methyl isocyanate, which is basically used in adhesives and plastics, um, pesticides. Someone left a valve open and released it. It killed 15 to 20,000 people and gave a half a million respiratory distress. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And that's a plant just like a nuclear plant. Yeah. Right? We didn't go shut down all the methyl isocyanate plants. We still build them. They're in the United States. We learn. We move forward. We took more precautions. There was a dam that broke in China, killed 26,000 people, and another 171,000 died of malaria and starvation following the dam break. That's way worse than Chernobyl. It's the word nuclear... That's it. Isn't helpful. Right. That's yeah. it. That's it. It needs a rebrand. Yes, it needs rebranding. Yeah. But there's a great progressive case for nuclear power, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no quicker way to lift people out of poverty than abundant, cheap energy. Yes. And we can make it clean, right? I mean, release I mean, for coal, okay, wood and coal. And this is important, I think, to understand. This is where I get passionate, so bear with me. Right? Go for it. So it's important to understand... This is not a or question. It's not this or that, right? We lack a coherent policy as countries and a world about what we need to do. We need to get the politics out of it and we need to put the education into it, right? Because if you educate people, they're not afraid. Three billion people still burn wood to heat their homes and cook. Mm-hmm. Wood is three times worse than natural gas and 1.5 times worse than coal, right? I read an article recently, 35,000 additional wood stoves had been bought in England this past year. Over previous years, people afraid they couldn't heat their homes. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. 
Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also today, we have Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast. And I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot l-e-d-g-e-r dot com hold on is natural gas worse than coal no they'll say about three times so the the wood is three times worse than natural gas and 1.5 times worse than coal okay yeah Yeah. does that make sense to you Yeah, yeah right right so we need to move these three billion people that still use wood onto something else even if it's coal that's better yeah then natural gas is even better right while we're working on clean energy, like when I say clean energy, that's nuclear, solar, hydroelectric, and wind. Yeah. The problem is when you're dealing with wood, I mean, when you're dealing with your water and your solar and your wind, that's energy capture. It's not energy storage. Yeah. Right? So it's very inefficient. Very inefficient, right? So the capacity factors, the usage factors of those things are very low. So if you have, let's say, a 100-megawatt system of solar, you get about 25 megawatts out of it. Yeah. The same with your wind, right? Your hydroelectric, I think, is around 40%, and your fossil fuels are around 70, and your nuclear is around 90, right? So that's a big deal, right? So we've got to start moving people away from the wood to the coal, away from the coal to the gas, and then on to these other things like nuclear. Right now, I think nuclear is 20% of the energy in the United States, and it's 56% of our clean energy. Feels like it needs to be about 98%. That that would be... I even struggle for the idea of why you would... Ha- I mean, look, it's great at your home you have solar panels. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent thing that people can be doing. But I kind of think uh, a lot of this move now to... Solar and wind is pointless when you can do the majority right. with nuclear. Yes, because what we've done is it, we've you don't solve a problem by conceiving the problem incorrectly, right? Yeah. So we've taken a poorly conceived problem and we built an economic model on top of it. Yeah. That's a recipe for disaster, right? And you're seeing it in places that have you specifically from where you're from are seeing the pain of poor political decisions absolutely driven by people that aren't nuanced and educated and understand everything carries some risk there's no such thing as risk free okay so one of the things i tried to do in preparation for this was go figure out 
so we can compare apples to apples. Deaths per terawatt of energy generated because that equals the playing field. That is the risk factor. Yes, so 25 from coal, 25 deaths per terawatt. Okay. Okay. You get into your things like hydro, 1.3, gas, 3, instead of 25. Okay, wind, 0.04, nuclear, 0.03, solar, 0.02. Hmm. 100% safer. And that's 50 years of data. What Now, does it pose some risk? Absolutely. So does wind, so does solar. I, I think, I think uh, the risk really is, what is the catastrophic risk from solar that kind of doesn't exist? It doesn't exist for wind. But even when you use all the accidents in nuclear that have occurred, the yeah. numbers still come out the same over time because people die installing solar panels. Oh, no, no I understand all this. Right. I, think, I think the fear is the, cata- like the, fear is the catastrophic mm-hmm. risk. Right. It's, um, with Chernobyl, isn't part of the story that we were particularly lucky that it could have been significantly worse and half of Europe could have been I affected? Don't, I don't believe so. No. You don't believe I so. think that it was, if you had developed a computer model of worst-case scenarios, it would have been Chernobyl. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. What was the bit my brother was talking about? I can't remember exactly, but it was something to do with like a pool of water below the reactor. And if some, something had of reached that pool of water that had been, I hesitate to use the word explosion, but like yeah. a, an event. An event. So there are issues with, and I'm not an expert in graphite moderators, but there are issues with graphite moderators and water, but the reason that it reacted the way it did was the water in the graphite moderator to start with. Okay. So I don't know that more water would have made that big a difference at that point, but I, you know, I would have to look at specifically what he was referring to in order to answer that accurately. Okay, fair. Uh, to complete the circle, but just the short version, what happened at Three Mile Island? I know there's a <laughs> Netflix thing that you guys watched, but I fell asleep. So, so, <clears throat> so Three Mile Island, they lost cooling, right? Temperature increased, pressure increased, relief valve opened to relieve pressure as designed. Uh, the effluent went to a controlled area as designed. Pressure dropped. Valve did not reseat. Valve stayed open. The operators did not believe their indications. They stopped cooling water to the reactor, which you never do under any circumstances. And then the meltdown occurred. Okay. So they didn't believe their indications, and they did not understand the importance of maintaining cooling flow. So what came out of Three Mile Island was the whole training process around the world for nuclear reactors started focusing specifically on, right, control it, cool it, contain it, right? So much like we wouldn't look at a Model T vehicle and the problems that we had with those and assume that your new Rolls Royce or your new Ferrari would have the same problems, right? We have lot of data and a lot of lessons learned since Henry Ford made the first one, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of your anti-nuclear arguments are based on outdated models, overly conservative models that were originally made, not based on good facts, but on speculation, which they had to do that at the time, not faulting them for that. But instead of updating the risk probabilities with new models and new information, they tend to fall back on what happened in the past and assume that's going to happen again and not take into account all the lessons learned and progress that have been made, especially in design and training. 
So it seems like the majority of the issues have just come down to human error. <clears throat> Chernobyl was the most horrible design. I can't believe anybody in their right mind would design something like that. So Chernobyl was, it was a perfect storm of the worst design. The guys they had doing the test that night, most of them, they pulled off a neighborhood coal plant. They weren't even nuclear operators. Right, okay. They brought guys from a coal plant in to operate a nuclear reactor. And what, what are we working on, right? Hmm. Um, when was Chernobyl uh, constructed? I'm not sure of the date. Okay. Um, but my assumption is back then, there's probably a bit more variation in design because it was, it was a newer yes. technology, whereas you've got a more, lot more standardization. Now. I, yes, absolutely. And they were also designing that for more than just power generation, right? They were also designing it for, um, for, to make plutonium for weapons, right? So right. it was a different type of design. It okay. opened in 77. That sounds about right. It was a year before I was born. Well, you make me feel old. How old are you? I was born in 69. I mean, it's nine years. Yeah. You're nearer my age than I'm near Danny's. Wow. Danny's a baby. I was 91. Nice. Give that 91. <laughs> okay, so, so I have a good understanding of what's happened in those three uh, main incidents. Uh, my fear of, I mean, I didn't really have much of a fear of nuclear anymore. Um, so I think one of the primary issues is, is communication to yes. help people understand because I think if you're an environmentalist you have a duty to understand yes. nuclear and, and this this is the solution both to environmental concerns right. and also to uh, cheap, uh, cheap abundant energy for yes. people who require it. Yes, a absolutely right. So you're familiar with the ESG ETFs, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about those for a minute, right? If I look at one of those ETFs, an ESG ETF, yeah. and it doesn't include nuclear, I immediately just dismiss it, right? Because if it doesn't have nuclear in it, it obviously isn't concerned about the environment. I don't right? really think many of the ESG people are concerned about the environment I, anyway. I, I don't either, which is the point I'm making, right? Yeah. Right. Then you've got the governance piece and the social piece, right? Well, is there anything better you could do to lift people out of poverty than abundant, clean, cheap energy? And the more money people have to spend or are able to spend on other things than energy, then the more your GDP goes up, the more tax revenue you have, the more money you have to help the unfortunate, right? I mean, you gotta, their systems thinking is weak, right? They don't understand second and third order consequences. They know Climate change, bad, fossil fuel, bad, nuclear, bad. That's their talking points, right? But that's not nuanced. They don't understand the second and third order consequences of what they're doing. Climate change is not a problem. It is hundreds, maybe thousands of problems, and the solution for one can exacerbate another one. Hmm. Does, that, does that make sense yeah, what does. I'm saying, yeah, right? So they have to think more dynamically in a systems thinking and have an overarching plan their systems thinking is very weak. Their mental models are ill-informed, right? And then they don't take the time to learn. They're getting their information from Facebook memes. Has the nuclear industry itself then done a poor job in educating people? Because, In my humble opinion, yes. Because I'm, I'm going to take everything you said as correct. Okay. Um, uh, and in doing so, there is 
close to zero reason to not support the proliferation of nuclear energy. It solves a lot of problems. It's cleaner. It's cheaper, contrary to popular belief. Yeah. Much, much cleaner. It's even, it's even cleaner than solar. Mm-hmm. Okay, so coal puts about 800 grams per kilowatt generated. Your gas does about 400, so it's only half as bad, right? Your solar does about 40 grams per kilowatt, and then wind and, so, wind and nuclear are around 12 and 14. So it's cleaner even than the other clean energy sources. It's safer, as we can tell, by deaths per terawatt hour produced, big picture over decades of data, right? So it's also cheaper. Batteries with solar is about $120 a megawatt. Offshore wind is about $120 a megawatt, right? Nuclear is about $40 to $50 a megawatt. Some estimates even as low as $30 per megawatt, which that's even cheaper than gas, right? So your upfront cost is the problem, but they relatively quickly make back, and then they're in a profit for several decades after that. The new plants are supposed to last 60 to 80 years easily. And if they get more data down the road, they might even be able to extend that, right? Yeah, why would they last 60 to 80 years? Is that just like an assumption based on they don't know what's coming in the future or is is this a set of... It's it's all probabilistic risk analysis and design, right? Right, so the difference... So there's two types of risk analysis. There's probabilistic risk analysis and deterministic risk analysis. If you do good probability risk analysis, what you do is you take all the data and all the subsets of data and you plug it in to an algorithm and you get a bell curve. And then you can truly understand what risk is, right, and what life expectancies are. That's much the the model they use for climate change models, Uh okay, which that's what they use for nuclear power. I find it interesting that most of the people who believe the probabilistic risk analysis for climate change deny the probabilistic risk analysis for nuclear power. Hmm. But it's the same process that comes up and tells you that nuclear power is ultimately the safest. They like to use deterministic for nuclear power, which is where you pick a data set, and then you do the risk analysis, and you can imagine how easy that is to manipulate. Of course, yeah. Right. Yeah, I'd be interested to put put this in front of somebody who is uh, anti-nuclear uh, and, and, and see what their arguments are. But Well, the arguments will be it's more expensive. If you look at it cradle to grave, it's dirtier. You've got nothing that you can do with the nuclear waste, which is absolutely 100% not true. Yep. Right? Um, well, so, oh, yeah, we're worried about, they're worried about terrorists attacking plants, which is virtually impossible. And even if they got there, I don't know what they could possibly do. There's much larger bang for their buck elsewhere for them to waste their time with something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, They'll tell you that fusion is the way of the future and hydrogen is the way of the future, which we certainly need to keep working on those technologies. But what you'll find out is, is anytime, if you look throughout history, anytime the conversation about fusion comes up, it's always 50 years away. Well, we did have a breakthrough recently. We have, yes, yeah. absolutely. And I, I guess more than anyone, you will be tracking what's happening in fusion. Absolutely. It's an amazing technology. 
but we struggled to figure out how to handle 150 million degrees Celsius and the plasma involved. Yeah. Right. So we're a we have just figured out how to make the wheel. We're a long way from having a Ferrari. Okay. Right. So yeah. do you believe they will get with that? I think human ingenuity is amazing, right? And I ultimately think that the economics are going to drive the policy. Yeah. And I think if we eventually get to a point where we are really worried about climate change, then we will adopt nuclear power and we will keep working on fusion and even hydrogen. The problem with hydrogen, and a lot of anti-nukes really believe in hydrogen power, the problem, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to split the hydrogen and the oxygen, mm -hmm. because in your car, you would recombine them to create electricity, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is, is the only viable method to put enough energy into the system to split them, and, and so you can have the hydrogen, is nuclear power. You have to have nuclear power in order to cause the process by which you would get the hydrogen to put in the car, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, just one more on fusion. Um, my understanding of fusion is that if they did manage to solve the technical challenges mm -hmm. and build uh, fusion reactors, um, you would actually get to the point where you have cheap, abundant energy, mm -hmm. but also close to zero risk. It doesn't present the risk that fission does. I don't think we know enough to make a definitive statement like that. I think that that could be true. I is, think is that there radiation from fusion? You know, I'm not an expert on fusion, so okay. you'd probably do better to talk to someone who's, who understands the specifics of that more. Okay. Um, but I will tell you this, that, that any new technology is going to have bugs. And yep. I know I keep repeating this, but everything has some risk. Okay. Everything, right? Right. Okay. We'll, we'll look that up. We'll have to get a fusion, fusion person on at some point. Um, okay. So just back to my other point. So the... The proponents of nuclear energy have done a bad job yes. at uh, communicating the benefits. Yes. Um, but I still don't understand why uh, the people who run our governments still have this issue because they have the time and the ability to talk to people like you or other experts and understand like this is clearly a good option. Right. So you and I sitting here, it's easy to make that assessment. When you're dealing with money and lobbyists, that's the issue. In politics, it becomes more challenging, right? So, and I'm only speculating, but I can only imagine that there's a cross section of the fossil fuel industry that's not crazy about nuclear power for a reason. Okay. So, right now, have I ever talked to one and specifically had? No, but I mean, it's pretty okay. Observe behavior and infer motivation. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So your people who lobby against it that hide behind data that's not factual, they're doing that for a reason. Okay, what is their reason, right? So it's not hard to figure out that between green lobbyists, Hollywood, newspapers, fossil fuel, solar and wind, okay, they're not, <clears throat> they're not going to want to lose their share of the clean energy pie to nuclear, Right. Why would they? That's money out of their pockets, right? Mm. So there's a lot of politics, I can only imagine. Like I said, I'm speculating, but I can only imagine. Yeah, it'll be interesting if it's the fossil fuel industry that's driving the green lobbyists to work <laughs> against nuclear. Fascinating. So in terms of uh, nuclear, 
We I can't even remember the last time we commissioned a new plant. Well, we just I think we've just commissioned a new plant in the UK, but it's been a while since we've had one. Most of them are happening overseas right now. Yeah. Um, so the United Arab Emirates have done a couple of gigawatt reactors. That's that's about as big as that is. I believe that is the biggest ever. Um, they did two of them. Great success story. From the time they conceived the process and requested permission until it was built flowing electrons was about 10 years. Wow, because I think, uh, I think the, I've heard the process in the UK from conception, you wouldn't even get to construction in 10 years right. because of all the regulations. So Congress recently mandated for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, who licensed our plants in the United States, to streamline the process. And, okay, make it, so and make it better. That's a positive step. Because, that's a positive step. Because I heard it's, it's close to impossible to even get new ones commissioned in the U.S. So I think that we're seeing a shift in the last five or six years. Okay. Right. Um, basically, the NRC, I read an article, it's only been a few weeks ago, that the NRC came back with their proposal and it did not really streamline the process in the way that Congress was looking for. So I believe they've been sent back to the drawing board. Now, how accurate the article was, I can't speak to, um, but that was what I gleaned from it. And we've had a number of plants decommissioned. Uh, there was the one in California that Newsom wanted to decommission. I think they kept it going. Didn't they? Yeah, there's still a lot of debate back and forth on in the same with the ones in Germany, right? Same in Germany, right? yeah. So there, there are people are starting to wake up, right? And, and they're starting to realize eh, maybe this isn't such. You know, it's easy to have high ideals when your belly is full and you're warm and your car starts and everything's working, right? You let people go without heat, air conditioning, right? Hot showers. They'll start like doing some research and becoming more nuanced about energy. And, and can you mine Bitcoin off a of nuclear energy? <laughs> well, you had a gentleman on who talked about that, yes, right? I did, believe yeah. he did. Yeah, See, did. I do listen. Yeah, yeah you he, did. he did a great job. Absolutely, he did. Yeah, I thought, I thought his points were very good. Um, is there anything we've not covered yet that you think we should have covered? Should we get into the waste, maybe? Yes, uh, yes, yes. Waste. The waste is important. Let's talk about waste because people talk about that. What do you do with it? Where do you put okay. it? How dangerous is it? Right. So let's segue into it like this. Whether it's intentional or not, I do not know. But the fact of the matter is that the anti-nuclear and green groups have created problems in the nuclear industry and then complained about the problems that they created. Okay. For instance, it's extremely expensive. It's too expensive. We need other forms of energy because nuclear is too expensive. Yet they push for the overregulation that makes it so expensive. Okay? They do the same thing with the waste. They figured out early on that if they could attack the back end of the process and make it impossible to dispose of the waste, that the waste would build up, and then they could talk about how unsafe it was for the waste to build up. So they create their talking points, right, through political process, and they're very effective at it. And what is the waste? So your waste is your fission products, right? So plutonium, americium, neptunium, all your actinides is what they're called, right? Okay. So now, new technology, advanced fast reactors, solves a lot of that problem. So let's say, for instance, let's start with perspective. So if you lived 80-plus years and every single electron you ever used was from nuclear power. Every single mile you drove was from electricity generated by nuclear power in your Tesla, okay? Then you would generate two pounds 
of waste that would fit in this can of water. Me individually. You individually. Two pounds in your lifetime. Every man, woman, and child in the United States generates 800 pounds of coal waste a year. But is there not a difference between coal waste and nuclear waste? So the radioactive emissions from a coal plant are far more than from a nuclear plant. If a nuclear plant emitted the amount of radionuclides that a coal plant does in their coal ash, the nuclear plant would be shut down immediately. But we are still talking about, therefore, over the next 30 years... um, I mean, the population in the U.S. is 300 million people. So 325, 340. Yeah, so we'll be talking about 325 million cans. Right. That's, that feels like a lot still. But it's not when you look at the perspective of the other option, right? 800 pounds of coal a year instead of two pounds of nuclear waste. Okay. Right. right. So two, two pounds in a lifetime. Yeah. 800 pounds a year, Right. It's a huge difference in the amount. Um, you talked to someone one day, and they had a, a neat statistic. Like, if you took all the waste that had ever been generated worldwide, it would fit on a soccer field about 10 feet deep. Yes. Right? It's just simply not that much. So the plan was, originally, that we were going to store the waste in Yucca Mountain. Okay. Okay. Out in Nevada. The reason that that place was selected was because the government already owned it. And they had done weapons testing there, so there was already some contamination and radiation present. Made sense at the time. And then the political lobbying started, both sides, back and forth, back and forth. So we decided in the interim we were going to keep our waste in what we call dry cask storage, which is good for at least 100 years, right? Very safe. But eventually it needs to be moved somewhere more permanent. So my understanding of the problem with Yucca Mountain is that it's very geologically complex. So as far as tectonic, volcanic, water permeability of soil and rock, it's very complex, which doesn't mean that it will not work, but I would have to look at the probabilistic analysis and the math to make that determination, right? And so far, they have not managed to convince the regulators that that we can go forward with that. Now, how much of that's politics, I do not know. But they were supposed to have it online in 1998, and the nuclear industry was paying a certain amount of cents per kilowatt generated to a fund that was meant to pay for it. In 1998, it didn't come online, and the nuclear industry made the government pay them back. Where is the nuclear waste being stored right now? So wherever the plants are, they have it in dry cast storage at the plants. (laughs) Okay, so they've... Okay, so they want to ideally move to more centralized. Yes, yes, yes. more centralized is better. It's easier to keep track of. Um, the other thing is, is that deep geological repositories, right? That's really the way to go. That's what most other, Finland and several other countries use your deep geological repositories. What they basically do, they take the waste, they wrap the waste in copper so it will never corrode. Then they pack it with bentonite clay. Okay, that is what they call sorption because if anything is released it automatically adheres to the clay and it won't go any further mm-hmm. and then they pack then they bury that some you know five six hundred feet i don't know the exact distance underground right and they do it in an area with no tectonic or volcanic activity and where water doesn't move through the soil right so that's one plan okay the second plan is which we have been doing for a long time now is a place in New Mexico called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant. 
And that's where all the weapons waste goes from cleanup of weapons sites from back in the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. And it's in a salt bed some 2,000 feet underground that has remained exactly the way it is now for millions and millions of years. Hmm. Great place to store waste. And they've been doing it very safely there for a long time with zero problems. And it's not drums of green goo? No. Like the Simpsons? No, no. That's, that's part of our media hysteria, right? Yeah. Right? Now, I think that the looking forward in time, there's a place that's in the Pacific Ocean, 32 north, 164 west is what they refer to it as. And it's deep seabed disposal. Okay? That does sound scary. But it's not. Listen, this is good. There's a place there that has remained exactly the same for over 35 million years. It's a 35 or 38,000, it's almost the size of the state of Tennessee. And it's like a plain with no currents, no marine life. The clay is several hundred feet deep. You can put it in the clay. You've got the same sorption characteristics that you would have having it in the bentonite clay. You can put a tracker on it. You can keep track of it. You don't have to worry about terrorists being able to get to it and nuclear weapon, weapon proliferation. It solves a lot of your problems. Right. Have you looked at any of this? I'm sure I saw a thing to do with nuclear waste as a battery. Can you search for nuclear waste batteries, Danny? Well, what they can do is, is the water reactors that we have. So whenever they burn fuel, they burn about 2 to 5% of the fuel. So it will be like you taking a log and throwing it in your fireplace and burning the bark off and then throwing the log away, <laughs> right? They're not using much. Your advanced fast reactors, you can take the fuel once it's depleted about every 18 months you change the fuel, you can take the fuel out and you can put it in a fast reactor and burn almost 100% of it and there's almost zero waste left. And why does a fast reactor do that? Because it uses fast neutrons instead of thermal neutrons. Remember our discussion about okay, yeah, thermal yeah. neutrons? It uses fast neutrons. So what it can do is, is it can turn all those different actinides into burnable fuel and then burn it. Huh. And that's a new technology, of course, that we didn't have you know, 50 years ago, right? Two Fast reactors can burn all the fuel from five power reactors. Interesting. Yes. You find it? Yeah, there is this. I don't know if it's, if, the, if like anything's come of it, but. Nano diamond batteries, innovative energy generator and storage that redefines, revolutionizes the batteries. You know, it's long lasting properties and longevity are ensured by converting the radioactive decay yeah. energy from nuclear waste into energy. Yeah. So you remember we were talking about yeah. the decay heat? Remember yeah. that discussion we had earlier about the reactor? Okay, so that's the same decay energy process, right? And you've st you're still releasing, as you're having beta minus decay and other decays, you're releasing energy. Interesting. I've never seen that before, but I mean, I can see technologically why it would work. Can you go back, Danny, and go to images? Go to Google Images? Because I, I can think of a specific image I've seen with regards to this one. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, so there's a lot of innovation still to happen within this industry as well. well. Absolutely, yeah. There's some amazing things. Um, there are some new reactors that I do not have a good understanding of, but they're, um, <clears throat> they're gas-cooled reactors, right? And a lot of the fuel is in a different form in those, right? So uh, that, that's like some new, new cutting-edge technology that I'm not overly familiar with, but that's, that seems to be uh, what's coming out on the cutting edge. Yeah. So in terms of the, the issues that we're facing... How do you think we better communicate? Is it, is it things like this that get out to more people? Yes, absolutely, right? Imagine if the government took the time and energy that it spent on convincing people COVID vaccines were safe and did that for nuclear power for a year. Huh. 
That would work. That would definitely work. Right. And if we're really concerned about rising sea levels, drought, right? If we're really concerned about all of these deforestation, toxic chemicals, if we're really worried about all of these things, why would we not? If, we're, if 7 million people are dying a year from, from pollution, why would we not go do that training? We did it for COVID. Why would we not for nuclear power? Yeah. Education and get the politics out. That's the two things that need to happen. Do you miss working in the industry or are you very happy uh, in retirement? I get to listen to these wonderful What Bitcoin Did podcasts <laughs> and they keep them coming out like very frequently. So I, I, I do miss it sometimes. Um, you, you got one episode you can skip now because you were in it. I can. You're I, right. I can't listen back. I don't know how, you, how you'll do when you do uh, do it. Danny, anything else we've not covered? That I think we've got into it. Yeah, we've got into everything. Uh, this is everything I hoped and expected it would be. Um, okay. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I do think me and Danny are going to have to come and visit you and okay. go and hunt some deer and uh, sit by the fire and uh, uh, come down and see your farm. But um, this this was, honestly, this was great. It was really useful. And, and the information is great. And I, 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 you know, I hope... I hope this can be something that goes towards a better debate with regards to nuclear energy. Uh, I'm certainly going to be sending it to my friends and telling them to listen. And uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pro-nuclear guy. Good. So uh, I appreciate you coming in. Uh, most of the time I say to people, do you want to send them anywhere? Do you want, do you want to send people anywhere? Have you got a Twitter? I do, do have a Twitter. Yeah. Um, Anthony Jared, J-A-R-E-D, at P-A-G-J-69. All right. And a big thank you to your son for reaching out. And uh, yeah, good luck to the future and uh, I hope we see you again. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. All right. How good was that? Oh my God, how good was Anthony? Not only was that show incredible, the man turned up with loads of fresh home-cooked food for us, which was really, really cool of him to do so. But also, I just loved this. Loved hearing his stories of working on the nuclear reactors, on nuclear subs. And I loved hearing about his kind of truth bombs about nuclear. It's something I've been trying to learn about recently. I've obviously seen what's been happening with nuclear reactors being shut down around the world. You know, in Germany, there's been a big issue. Uh, the UK has been actually sourcing its nuclear from France and kind of getting to that realization of how important the technology is for the energy sector. Absolutely love this. Absolutely love talking to Anthony. Also, as I mentioned to you, we've relaunched, we've refreshed our Patreon page. Uh, this show was actually released two days ago on Patreon. Yeah, Patreons get new shows a couple of days early, and there's a whole bunch of other perks and things in there for subscribers. Now, if you want to check that out, please do head over to patreon.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. All right, have a great weekend, and I will see you all on Monday. Oh, yeah, if you want to reach out to me, I forgot to say, come on. If you want to reach out to me, got any questions about this or anything else, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Yes, I will see you all next week. 